Our church has been praying and fasting. Depending when you jumped in, it was uh, either a week or two. It's like, why? Why do we need to do that? Like, what's the big deal about um, having a sermon series that's about faith and sexuality? And I think it's like this. I was trying to think of a good way to explain it, but one thing that Heather, my wife, and I love to do is go out um, on a date together. Um, We don't get to do it very much or as much as we like, um, but I really like it. She likes it. And it's this chance for us to connect um, because we forget about each other. I don't, I don't know if you've experienced that if you're married, but you're just, you just go bonkers in life and you forget each other. Um, so you go to a restaurant, and if you're in a loud restaurant, it's still really hard to connect. Um, so you're sitting there, and you're trying to talk about these deep things and trying to basically like disengage from the mundane things of life and focus on things that are really important. And then there's like a table to the left, and there's a kid that's like, I don't like these chicken tenders, Mom! So you're like, all right, I have kids. I understand what it's like when they don't like chicken tenders. Um, but, you know, God, maybe work in this child that it would, uh, he, he or she would shut up. And then there's, you know, these two old guys, um, and one's like, and then Trump! And the other one's like, an Obama. And then they're taking my guns. And then they're like, I need my guns. And you're like, dude, I'm kind of with you on the gun thing. But like, can you just be quiet? I'm trying to talk to my wife and understand my wife and know my wife here. And then there's like, uh, then you look and there's this parade of women that come into the restaurant. And you're like, oh, no. And it, it's, it's it's a group of bridesmaids. And the bride has this dumb hat on with all these things that I won't talk about in church on it. And you're like, no, no, God, no. How could you do this? And they're just so loud and they come in drunk and they get drunker and you're just trying to connect. And that's why we've been praying and fasting as a church. We could say, oh, it's it's so that Todd will say the right things or Jasper will preach the right things and Bjorn won't defer uh, uh, to the wrong things and defer only to God and speak the truth. But ultimately, we've been praying and fasting because we need collectively God to change our hearts so that we will listen and receive the word of God. So ultimately, you've been praying and fasting for yourself in the best and most pure and holy way, that you would hear the word of God, receive it, test it against the word of God, and live in a way that glorifies God. We have notes for this week um, that are in kind of a bigger insert that was in your bulletin. They're kind of expanded notes, different than we usually do it. Hopefully you can look at these um, throughout the weeks to come. Our sermon outline today will kind of follow this um, if I stick to it. But ultimately, this is a three-part series. So I'm starting giving kind of a foundation, um, some why. But ultimately, I hope to look at what we believe, and that'll help us set this foundation so that we look at and think uh, rightly at the Word of God and at uh, relationships and things like that. So I'm going to do that. Then Jasper's going to talk next week about, hey, in regards to the struggles that we have in, in relationships and our sexuality... Uh, You better correct me if I'm wrong here, because I don't want to put words in your mouth. But, hey, how do we deal with those who are unbelievers, those outside the church? Just give, all right, good. And then Todd, following that, is going to say, okay, when someone professes Christ, and they persist in what we would say sexual immorality, that sounds like a very biblical 
um, term, but when they persist um, in sin of a sexual nature, what are, what are we supposed to do with that within the church? So that's kind of the layout of what we're going to do. But I do want to talk about, hey, why, why should we emphasize biblical sexuality? So if you look up on the screen, you're going to see this slide a lot, um, really, in the, in, the, in the weeks to come and hopefully the years to come. And it's basically, what's, what's our mission? What are we trying to accomplish as a church? And that's that basically, we're trying to glorify God by making disciples who will exalt Jesus Christ and who exalt Jesus Christ. So Charles talked about this last week. Everything is founded on Jesus, the living word of God. So it's not just Bible in terms of memorizing verses and understanding Bible verses. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ who is our foundation. When you know Jesus and when you're seeking after Jesus, these things spring up in your life. Authentic worship, fervent prayer, personal evangelism, spiritual growth, and genuine love. These things happen. And how do they happen? And this is the interesting part. They happen by, by doing those things. So it's like this, this circular thing where, well, when you seek Jesus, you, you worship authentically. Well, how do you seek Jesus? Well, you worship authentically. It's one of these paradoxes of being in Christ Jesus. But there's a crisis, ultimately, in the foundation in the church. And I, I understand that people have been saying this for thousands of years, so we're not going through anything that's particularly unique right now, but there is indeed a crisis in the church with the foundation. And that's kind of like this. We view sexuality as like issues. So we say, on this issue. But when, when we do that, you're degrading the humanity within it. You're making it an issue, something that you step back from, and you're going to say, I'm not going to talk about you as a person. This is just an issue that I'm going to talk about. And you're right or you're wrong in this issue. But they're not really issues. Our understanding of the Bible and our understanding of sexuality isn't so much an issue as an indicator of how we know and understand Jesus Christ. So we talk about truth. We talk about love. We talk about worship. We talk about evangelism. None of these things mean anything. We have no idea what these things mean apart from the word of God. We can't bring our understanding into the Word of God. The Word of God judges us and tells us if we know rightly. And when you get that foundation wrong, everything else is wrong. So you could look at one of those pillars, and it could be crooked, right? And you could say, Merle, straighten that pillar out. But Merle can't do that if the foundation is broken, right? If the foundation is broken and you make the top of the pillar straight, all you're doing is twisting something, perverting it, corrupting it. If the foundation is right, the pillars will stand straight up. And that's what we want to do in regards to this series. But the challenge is when there's a foundation crisis, then all these other crises come out of that. One of them, I would say, is a spiritual growth crisis within the church. That's why we want to talk about some of these. So people talk about the love of Christ and all these things that are true and awesome. But if we look at our lives collectively, are we looking more and more like Jesus? And there's a crisis in regards to that. And as an elder in our church, that greatly concerns me and all the elders. So you look at a, a letter that Jesus basically wrote to the church in Thyatira. Now you could say, well, this was a meaning, meaning for this and a metaphor for this, or uh, it was about a certain age in the church or about an actual church. Ultimately, all those things are not as important that Jesus told the church something. And he said, you're doing all these awesome things, but you do this. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. 
She's basically saying she's a prophetess and she's promoting sexual immorality. And you know what I'm going to do because you tolerate that woman? I gave her a chance to repent. But because you tolerate that, you did this, church. It's not just about her. Because you did this, I'm going to make you sick. Now you could say, well, that's a metaphor. If that's a metaphor, it's still not a good thing. A metaphor about sickness. So there's concern that the foundational crisis is causing this spiritual growth crisis. And then the other one is this. In Romans 12, verse 2, it says, hey, don't be conformed to the patterns or thinking of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then what does it say? That by testing, you may know what the will of God is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. So there's this idea that when God's will looks bad, we're like, well, well, God must be bad. The problem is when God's will looks bad or doesn't feel right to us, it's that we're not, we're not thinking rightly. Our minds have been twisted because we're not growing spiritually. We have to go back to the word of God. And the foundational crisis also creates this other crisis, and that's what I call a genuine love crisis. And I kind of break it out in two ways. Two patterns of false love. Two buckets of false love. And the first one is, goes something like this. And I'm speaking generally. So churches are all over the place. But some churches will say like, hey man, judge not. So don't judge me, brah. but they're missing the truth of what God's word says. They don't understand what Jesus was saying when that's recorded in Matthew 7. They just have no idea. So they're basically saying like, well, anything goes. I decide what's right and wrong. And don't, don't you tell me that God's word says this about what's right and wrong. They point out 1 Corinthians 13, for example, but they, they forget that, that that writing from Paul to the church in Corinth also says, hey, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. But there's another kind of false love too. And maybe some of you uh, who have grown up in the church have seen this kind of false love. And that's this. There's people who are lost in the world. And rather than point them to Jesus, churches have said, you're disgusting, stay away from us. That's not genuine love. And then there's, there's another aspect to it where there's people within the church who are trying to follow Jesus. And really want to. They haven't rejected Jesus. They're people who want help. And rather than surrounding them with the eternal hope and promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ, some churches have basically said, the only way I'm going to help you is if you, you have to hide your sin and shame. Don't confess it. I just don't want to know about it. That's not genuine love to do that. So spiritual growth. Genuine love, both require a right foundation. That's why we're starting the series in this way. And we're going we're gonna, to gonna buzz through some principles. I think there's 12 of them, if I, if I remember my own outline. Um, but if, if we just launch into a bunch of do this, don't do that, say this, don't say that, and we're not aligned together as a, a body of believers on what the foundation is and why all these things are true, then basically we're just, we're another opinion in this swirling, awful sea of fruitless, ego-stroking, self-inflating, pedantic, time-wasting quarrels about words that people always post on YouTube. But if we stick with Jesus and the truth of what Jesus says, there's actual power, peace, and joy. 
So actually, I'm going to pray. Um, and then we can get into what we believe as a church and what you should believe as a believer. Heavenly Father, you're good. It is uh, so sad that we have to make such a big deal about this. I, just, I, I, I can't wait till you come back, Jesus, and then things will be how they're supposed to be. But give us confidence and joy now um, to trust you, to have faith and hope. I think uh, my own dad, when we memorized Romans 12 at the dinner table, and you were there, God. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Help us to be sincere in our love, genuine love, that we would be sincere, that we would hate what is evil and we would cling to what is good. We can only do this by the power of your son, Jesus. Thank you that we have it. So I pray these things in his name. Amen. So we're going to go through, this is kind of going to be like a a credo or like a bunch of statements about what we believe. But really within that, I hope that you'll see it's really about the story that God has written throughout all of Scripture. Some of the points are going to go really fast and you're going to say, why did he buzz through that? It's just for sake of time. Some of them we're going to dive deep into together. But does that sound good? If you say no, I'll just not look at you and ignore you. Sounds good. All right. We believe that God designed people to glorify him. This is a foundational piece. So it, there's verses in the handout that we had. Every one of them says plus more because there's not a single proof text on any of these things because the fullness of God's word says all these things. So you can look at one verse like Colossians 1.16, which says all things were created through him and for him. And that proves that out. But there's also so much that's in the fullness of God's word that proves these things out. We believe that God designed people to glorify him. What what does that mean? Well, design is intentional creation for a specific purpose. So creation was intentional. God did it on purpose at a certain time, and he did it for a specific purpose. And that was to glorify himself. So you were created to glorify God. That's, That's your ultimate purpose. What does it mean to glorify? You could preach 258 sermons about that and it would still be insufficient. But glorifying God is this. Everything about you, everything about you, everything you're thinking and saying and doing basically reflects and points to how holy and great God is. That's my definition this morning for glorifying God. And when we approach Scripture and understand that we were created for this, you were designed to glorify God, it impacts the way that you think about things. And then we always have this crisis. I call it basically anthrocentric or people-centric thinking versus God-centric thinking. And then as you look at the fullness of God's Word, you realize it's not just God-centric thinking. It's Christo or Christ, Jesus-centric thinking. That will be woven throughout all of this. You don't just slather Jesus on top of the word of God. He is the word of God, and that's awesome. So when it comes to dealing with some core things that we're facing, specific areas of sexuality that we're talking about in the church, like people who are attracted to people of the same sex, or people who are interacting sexually with people of the same sex, or people who are struggling in terms of being born as, as one sex, but feeling like another one, or feeling pain from being that. Some of the churches adopted this thinking that's 
really man-centric, anthrocentric. And basically, they've elevated human emotions and feelings over the exaltation of Jesus. Some churches have done that. Other churches have basically taken this man-centered thinking, and basically they've said, well, there's nothing you can do. We're going to ignore the power of the gospel. We're going to ignore the purposes of God in Jesus Christ. Just don't talk about it and stay away from us, because that's really hard to deal with. Be warm and well-fed. Go in peace, but stay away from us. And then all of this, it seems like it's degraded into this endless quarreling about words. This actually means this. No, you're wrong. This actually means that. Sodom and Gomorrah is actually about this. You're an abomination. You're a bigot. You're disgusting. You're judgmental. You don't even understand Judaism. You don't know the context of the epistles. All about people and nothing about Jesus. But the core of the pain and the division and the struggle isn't feelings or scholarship, academics. It's not outrage. It's not inclusion or exclusion. It's that we've generally stopped looking at the Bible as the singularly authoritative revelation of God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus to the praise of his glorious grace. The problem isn't simply that we disagree about parts of the Bible. It's that we've become completely unhinged to the entire purpose of the Bible, which is exalting Jesus Christ so that God would be praised. So ultimately, when you think about what we're doing, this story that we're living out, this is not your story. Your life is not your own. You were designed for Jesus. Your sin messes that up, but then Christ redeems you. He bought you with a price. So everything about you, your endocrine system, your excretory system, your hypothalamus, I don't know what that does. Nicole could probably tell me. I don't understand it. Uh, That thing, the dangly thing that hangs down in the back of your throat, All those things were designed by God that Jesus Christ would be glorified and that we would say, God is amazing. God be praised because of this. And especially then, not just our bodies, but this unique dichotomy that God has given us. The fact that we're not just bodies, we are spirits, or you could say souls too. Your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings. All those things were designed to glorify God so that heaven and earth will look at, look at you and say, God is amazing. So you're designed to glorify God. No matter what you do, what you try, and I think as a church we could say we've tried a lot of different things. However we've tried it, whoever we've tried it with, nothing will bring you lasting peace and rest and comfort and satisfaction outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Absolutely nothing. Jesus is your only hope. So that's what we believe. We also believe this, that God designed people to be like him and represent him. God designed us, people, to be like him and represent him. Now, where do I get that? Well, I get it in the Bible. In Genesis, when it's talking about design and creation, it says that we're created in God's image in the likeness of God. That's in Genesis 1. It's actually all through the Bible, if you're, if you're looking for it. But people are uniquely designed 
and expected to be like God and represent him to model all of creation. When we hear likeness of God and image of God, there's a tendency to go on this kind of scholarly thing where we're, like if you're really into the Bible, you're like, all right, I know there's these communicable attributes of God and those can be passed to humans and, and that means this and then people can be creative and people can know things and people, and it's like, that's not what the people were thinking when they first read what was written down in Genesis 1. Not at all. They were thinking likeness and image. And that basically means representative figure and, and looking like, resembling looking like God. So, so what does this mean? One really awesome thing that it means is that only human beings have this, this special uh, elite level of dignity. After the flood, God's talk, talking to Noah. And he's like, hey, if you or anyone takes someone's life, that life will be taken from them because that, they, they mess with the image of God. It's in Genesis 9. And then later, James writes, hey, if you're, you're making fun of people, if you're mocking people, what you're doing is you're, you're basically slandering, you're mocking and saying bad things about someone who's created in the image of God. Don't do that. There's a special level of dignity in being created in God's image. And ultimately, it means that you glorify God. Part of your glorification of God is you being like him and representing him, modeling and displaying his holiness and his greatness. God created you that way. And part of that also is being designed male or female. So a key part of God's design is for people to be male or female. There's two distinct sexes. Both men and women are designed to be like God and to represent him. There's this cool thing as you look at that. Well, what, what does that really mean? Like, why did God design it that way? We see something about God in it. The first thing we see is unity. So there, God created one race. I know it's weird when I say that. You think of like black, white, Hispanic, Latino. Just one human race, but two sexes. So it represents that God is one. God's not divided. God is one. But it also represents equality. So when you think about man and, and women, and then you think about, well, in, in the Godhead, the, the Trinity, we say Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all, they're all equal. It's not like, well, the Holy Spirit is kind of lower because this. And Jesus, sometimes it seems like he's the highest, but usually he wants God to be glorified. And they're all co-equal within the Godhead. God is one. The three persons of God are equal. But there's also differences and this is what's awesome in the Trinity. God wants Christ to be exalted. That, that's his goal. And then Christ wants God the Father to be exalted. And then you'd say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Charles talked about this last week. The Holy Spirit is pointing to Christ all the time. But they have different roles as persons of the singular unified Godhead. So men uniquely represent God with their maleness. Women uniquely represent God with their femaleness. And that's part of being created in the image of God. Now, if you're kind of a thinker, you would say, well, why aren't there three sexes? Because there's three persons in the Trinity. Or maybe you say, as you think about it, well, why aren't uh, male and female represented both within a single person? That sounds like really crafty if you read that on a blog or something. 
but it, it doesn't reflect the truth of God's word. And we have to remember this. Listen, listen carefully to this because I think, I think you'll be offended unless you're listening carefully. So listen carefully. God is not male or female, nor both male and female. Why? Because God is not created. Male and female are creation words. They're about physicality, biology. But God is not a created being. Now, this, this doesn't mean uh, that we dishonor Scripture and disregard what it says. So think about Scripture. God is our father, not our, not our mother. That doesn't mean that God doesn't do things that we would say are motherly, but God is represented in Scripture as our father in heaven. God is the king, not the queen. God is Lord, not lady. And remember this, Jesus is a man. So Jesus is incarnate. Jesus is God who is a man. Jesus is biological. He came as a man, like Adam, but he was perfect, where Adam was not. So remember this, God designed people to be like him, to represent him. But he didn't design people to be God. So there's something that's represented in people that's basically like not like God too, and that's this, need. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, glorified in, in eternity past. They didn't need anything. He didn't need anything. God didn't need anything. But the way that people are created, what did God say when he created Adam? He's like, it's not good for him to be alone. I'm going to create a woman for him, a helper suitable for him. So the two sexes display and reinforce something within humanity that God doesn't have need. And they play a key part. The two sexes are important. It's not just like, well, that's kind of just this part of way that God set it up. And so the plumbing and parts will work out right. God did this to play a key part in representing the dependence people have on him and on each other. We're going to have to buzz through these final points because I'm way behind. But basically, we believe that God designed marriage as a lifelong union of one man and one woman. When you understand marriage, you must first understand man and woman in terms of being part of God's design and creation. So God designed marriage to reflect his faithful covenant relationship with his people. It starts as this kind of functional thing that you see in Genesis 1 and into the Genesis 2. You see, okay, God made things this way. And then what does it say? I think it's verse 24 in Genesis 2. It says, therefore. So it's talking all about, all about this creation and design, right? And then it's like, therefore, God is going to leave his father and mother and be joined together with the woman. And there'll be, what, one flesh. So then Scripture goes on, right? We get to the prophets, we see all these examples within the prophets of marriage basically being this representation between God and his people. Read the book of Hosea sometime. It's basically all about that. And then Micah, it's all through there. And then we get to the incarnation. People say like, well, Jesus doesn't talk about this stuff when I read it in my Bible. That's because you're not reading your Bible right. If you go to Matthew 19, you don't have to do it right now, but you should at some point this week. Jesus, basically, when confronted with this idea of sexuality in regards to divorce, he calls the Pharisees out first. He's like, haven't you read? And then he says, this is how it was from the beginning. This is God's design. And he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So why did God join this together? As a representation of his own relationship with his people. Covenant, inseparable relationship. That's why divorce is bad. Because what God has put together, don't let people tear apart. That's what Jesus said. 
And then you get to this. So there's Jesus in the incarnation, and then Jesus ascends, and Paul, the apostle, comes along, and he's like talking about all these things that husbands and wives are supposed to do. And then he just throws this out there. Hey, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about this. I'm talking about Christ in the church. That's what marriage is. So we see this unfolding in Scripture, right? Where basically all of a sudden we understand, wow, this is all about Jesus' relationship with the church. And that's why you don't mess with marriage, to be quite frank. Because you're not just saying, well, it's about people's relationships and they can decide how they do those. That relationship is a representation of God's relationship with his own people. That's why we don't mess with math. You got it. And ultimately, you have to decide then, am I going to make a people-centric decision about how I'm going to read the Bible or a Christocentric decision? Is this, is this about me, the Bible, or is this about the story that God is writing about Jesus? And that comes with sex, too. God designed sex as the whole union of one man and one woman within marriage. So God did design, you can read it in Genesis 1, sexual interaction, sexual behavior for multiplication. That's, that's part of it. That's within animals, too, lower than people. But then there's this aspect that's like, oh, boy, uh, do we want to talk about this in church? Uh, so if you're offended by this, my, send me an email, uh, todd.hostetter at harvestwestout. <laughs> but basically, you cannot read the Word of God and come away with any other idea that God created sex in terms of sexual interaction for pleasure. You could tell me I shouldn't talk about that, uh, and you would be wrong, because that's what the Word of God says. So there's this aspect of pleasure within sexuality, and that's because God designed this, this sexual interaction to reflect basically his faithful covenant union with his people. Sexual behavior ultimately displays worship. Imperfection. Worship is better than sex. Now you're like, whoa, 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 you can't say something like that. You shouldn't talk that way. And I can. Read the books of wisdom in a Christocentric perspective. Read the Psalms. Read Proverbs. Read Ecclesiastes. Read the Song of Solomon and understand that Christ is our beloved and we are loved by him. And yeah, that's talking about sexuality within the marriage relationship, but you just cannot get away from that idea. And then keep turning, read the prophets. Why does God use infidelity as this example? When people are idolatrous, why is it, why is it all about adultery, infidelity, and wrong sexual behavior? It's because it's powerful. Sex isn't dirty. Sin, sin is very dirty, but sex is powerful because it's a gift from him to glorify him. And not in the like 1 Corinthians 10 way alone where well, all things glorify God. It is especially created as this representation of what it is like when his people are with him in worship and interacting with him. And that's why when you mess with sex, it's an egregious thing. One man, one woman, only in marriage, only in purity. Don't have time, but I challenge you to read Scripture in that regard. We believe that people seek their own glory instead of the glory of God, which is sin. And because of sin, God disorders all of creation, including human genetics and physiology. In your note, it says, after sin, God's image is distorted. That should say, after sin, God's image in people, in mankind, is distorted. So we're still designed 
to be image bearers. And we're still expected to do that. But we're kind of like a painting that a child just kind of smeared all over. Or like a window that's been cracked. So we, we still must do that. And we're designed to do that. We just don't do it well. And then after sin, God's designs are disordered. If you look at what happens in Genesis 3, after the woman's deceived and the man does nothing about it, just stands there, Adam did, while his wife gets tricked by the devil. But if you look at that deception, what happens right away? They're hiding from God. And there's this great shame. So like, what, what, is, what does sin do to us? All these awful things. Like walking in perfection with, with God one day. And then the next day, you're trying to run away from God. You're hiding. And the Hebrew word is they're afraid of God. Everywhere it talks about fear. Not the good, reverential fear of God. God says, you can't, you can't be in this place anymore, this garden. It's not, it's not going to be good for you. You will only make things worse. And then they're cursed. God curses the serpent. And then he says to the woman, this thing that would be your glory, this multiplication that you got to play this key role in, that's going to be awful. And all the women said, Amen. Greatly increase your pains in childbearing. And then the man, he said, your toil, you're just going to live in futility. It's going to be hard and by the sweat of your brow. And because of you, Adam, the whole earth is cursed. It's been subjected to futility. Turn to Romans 1. Um, I want us to, to get this point, and then we can... Jump through some other ones. So in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then down to 22, if you could look at that. So claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In Romans 1, you see this pattern three times. That people exchange the glory of God for created things. And then God gives them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And the people are dishonored. 23, then look at 20, 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So Paul, in writing this, starts at one level. You see it in 23, they exchange the glory of God. God gives them over to that. He said, I, I am not going to stop you in your worship of something else. And in that, I decree that you will, your lives will look like what it's like when I'm taken away from the center of the universe. Then 26, it just becomes clear, 25 and 26 into 27, that there's this 
key egregiousness and disregarding the natural things, the way that God designed things. And then 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, again, not acknowledging God, worshiping something else, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. The rest of the chapter goes on to talk about all these awful things that happen when we take God away from being the center of the universe. Disorder is part of God's judgment against sin. I wrote in my notes, God, please show us how awful and broken sin is. I hope that the Holy Spirit's doing that in your heart right now. But basically, when we exchange the worship of God for the worship of anything else, God does not stop us. He gives us over to that. And decrees that our lives will reflect this wrong ordering. This, listen, this especially includes our sexual relationships because we, as we just learned, they're specially designed to display faithful covenant relationship and union. And that's why we believe that any sexual behavior outside of marriage is sexual immorality. So think about it this way. If I was meeting someone new after church, and I said, my wife and Heather have been going, going here for 11 years or whatever, um, and there's, like, we're across the room from Heather, I, I could do it this way. So I could be like, Nicole's not Heather. Uh, Katie's not Heather. And I could go through, I don't know how many people would be in here. I could go through like 400 people who aren't Heather. And then at the end, it would be like, oh, that's Heather. Or I could say, that's Heather right there. She's the one I like to go on dates with. She's the one that I like to hang out with. She's the one who is praying for me this week. She's the one who, just like Jesus, doesn't give up on me, even though sometimes I deserve it. So you could look at Scripture and say, like, well, I need to know everything I shouldn't do. Make me a list, God, everything I shouldn't do. Or you could say, God, show me what you love and celebrate. So if you want to know about God's design for marriage, look across Scripture, all of God's Word, and see the ways that God celebrates marriage. And you won't find anywhere in all of God's Word a celebration of same-sex unions. No matter how monogamous or committed those people might be in those unions, God doesn't celebrate that. You don't find a celebration of polygamy. Lamech, the first guy to do it. What a fool. Read about Lamech. I can't remember where it is in uh, the outset of Genesis. What a fool. He took two wives for himself. His whole life just proves that he's a fool. God doesn't celebrate divorce. So there's all these things that God celebrates and all these things that he doesn't. Look for the things within Scripture that God celebrates. It goes for the design of sexuality as well. Look across Scripture. What does God say about sexuality? You won't find a celebration within the Word of God of same-sex behavior, same-sex interaction sexually. It's not there. You won't find a celebration of masturbation and pornography. It's not there. There's nowhere that God celebrates that. And ultimately, if if you consider that, pornography, images, and masturbation, that's like the ultimate example of idolatry, worshiping before something that's just an image of the created There's not a celebration of hooking up, polyamory, open relationships. Nowhere does the Word of God celebrate those things. So that's the answer. And if you want to make things people-centric, as you look at the Word of God and say, like, well, this is about this and how people feel or whatever, you can say, what does Jesus celebrate? What does Jesus talk about all the time? 
We believe that all sins separate people from God equally, but sins of sexual immorality uniquely dishonor the body. I think both Jasper and Todd might hit on this a little bit, but ultimately, God is disgusted with all sin. So we use the word abomination. For some reason in our culture, that uniquely became associated with what people used to call all the time homosexuality. So same-sex behavior. God is disgusted with all sin. All sin is an abomination. But sexual immorality is unique. 1 Corinthians 6, it's against the body. So the way that God designed your body, when you misuse your body sexually, you're actually hurting yourself, though you may not recognize it. So pornography and masturbation, that's harming your body. A psychologist uh, with worldly thinking might say, that's rubbish, and that guy's a fundamentalist saying that, but that's not according to the design that God has. You're hurting yourself the way that he made your body to partake in sexual behavior and then have no union within that only hurts you. That's why hooking up is bad too. It only hurts you. All other sins are outside your body. Sexual immorality... It's within your body. It's against your body. And it's also the fact that in Christ, your body's joined to Christ. You're dragging Christ into your crap. And while same-sex behavior in that, in terms of sexual interactions between the same sexes, that doesn't uniquely condemn people any more than any other sexual immorality. But it does duly violate God's representative design. And that's, that's because of this. You can't do that within marriage. Because marriage requires the union of a man and a woman. So you, you can't have sexual behavior outside of marriage and say that somehow it's right. And you can't have two like kinds being married together. And that can't represent the joining of different beings, God and his people. That's why you don't mess with marriage and sexuality. Because it represents more than just us and our lives. We're talking about God's relationship with his people. But ultimately, eternity, so we say heaven and hell aren't about our abominations, but they're about ultimately this. Do we submit or do we reject the lordship of Jesus Christ? That's what it's all about. So some people are like, man, you guys talk about sexuality so much. And I would say, well, it's a, it's a series about sexuality. So I'm, I'm going to talk about sexuality. But I don't talk about it all the time. I want to talk about Jesus all the time and how he fits into this. By grace, through faith, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what we're all about. There's an eternal difference, we believe this, between temptation towards sexual immorality and committing sexual immorality. So I'll say it like this. There's been this fruitless debate for, for a long time in the church. Like Some people would say, like, well, God made me this way. And I would say that's, that's not what the Word of God says. That's not God's design. But at the same time, I believe you and understand that you exist this way. And that's because we all have our flesh. So everyone wanted to argue all the time about, like, why did this happen? Is it a genetic thing? Is it a hormonal thing? Is it some physiological thing about how different parts of our bodies work together? Is it an environmental thing? Is it just this psychological thing that's all up here? And ultimately, the way that God composed us, all those things work together. So there's not just this one factor, like, well, you got the gay gene. There's nothing you can do about it. That's not true. There is something that you can do about it. And that's to look to Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you not to focus on the type of temptation that you experience. Don't focus on the type of temptation that you experience at all, but focus 
on the truth of Jesus and glorify him with your whole being. Don't focus on the type of temptation that you have. Don't think like, I'm tempted so much in this. Then you're thinking about the wrong thing. Think about Jesus and the truth from his word. Now, I would get it. Some of you would say that it's too strong to resist that temptation. I would say, how does, how does Jesus do that? How did Jesus do that? So the one to whom we're being conformed by the will of God never had sex because he was never married. Jesus was able to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit in the same way he endured in the wilderness. So we can do it too. Jesus was fed by something greater than flesh. And he said it was to live out and accomplish the will of God. Next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this, that we're called to deal with sin differently in believers within the church than unbelievers outside the church. But I would, I would just say this. Think about this as the, the two weeks come up. Why are you surprised that someone who doesn't know Jesus acts like it? And what does genuine love really look like? It says in John 1 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. That means he is 100% grace and 100% truth. So we like to pick and choose. We say, I have this natural kind of inclination to be more a grace person or a truth person. And all that's saying is, I have this natural inclination not to be like Jesus. Full of grace, full of truth. Genuine love is at the core of the emphasis of what we're going to talk about when Jasper talks next week and then Todd. Two awesome points. We're just going to go over time. Sorry, child care workers. I, I genuinely am. Um, but this is more important than just keeping a schedule. We believe that the person and work of Jesus Christ is the singular hope and satisfaction for all people. So good. So good. So only Jesus takes the curse and judgment of God. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus is the only one. So that curse that happened to Adam and Eve in the garden, and then the way that the the earth is cursed even because of Adam... God subjected the, the earth to that futility in hope, knowing about this awesome plan that Christ would be exalted and God would be glorified. Jesus restores people to God. So at sin, they were kicked out of the garden, right? They couldn't connect with God in the way they were designed to do, and Jesus restores that. Jesus owns and transforms people's identity. Jesus owns your identity, and then he transforms it. It's awesome. Jesus gives hope. You know what hope is? Hope is a recognition that right now it's not how it's supposed to be. But it will be. That's what hope is. And Jesus truly satisfies. God is not holding out on us. There's nothing better than to know Jesus. But there's this challenge. We believe that the return of Christ will restore perfect order to everything. But until that time, believers are called to respond to the disorder of sin in ways that glorify God. We were talking about this sermon outline. And Corey's like, yeah, that's pretty uh, academic. And I agree. 
So I, I would say it like this. The promises of Jesus are right now and not yet. So Jesus is progressively restoring more and more of God's image in his children. It's not like, it's not like this, like boom. And yet, there are things that are instant. You're instantly in God's family when God regenerates your heart and you can see the truth of the gospel and you choose to follow Jesus. It's instant. You're in the family and you know what? Nothing can ever take you out of the family. Nothing. But you're in the wilderness still in some measure because there's still affliction. And Paul writes in Romans 7, it's this flesh. I'm broken. But Jesus promises to restore order to that. And you know what? Jesus is with us in the wilderness. The wilderness is this picture that we just keep seeing throughout Scripture. His people were in the wilderness, but they always saw him. He was with them. Elijah went to the wilderness. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness. There's just this idea that we're in the wilderness. And then Jesus went out and conquered it. At the end of it, Satan tempted him, and he fully resisted by the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Word of God. But right now, too too many churches are trying to tell people everything's going to be great if you just accept Jesus. And that's a false hope. The true hope, the living hope, is that right now you're still in your flesh. But in the future, Jesus promises that it's going to be awesome. Is, is marriage and sex a big deal? Yeah, it really is. And I get it. If you're part of this body and you're like, you know what, I am, ultimately, I get that I'm disordered. There's just something about me. I don't know if it's genetic or hormonal or this thing that happened that was bad when I was a kid or this thing that happened that was something when I was a kid or my brain and my thinking just isn't right, but I'm attracted to people of the same sex. And it hurts when when an elder of a church gets up and says, I can't get married. I can't experience relationship with someone in that special way. And it hurts when I seem to be excluded from this special way of God's representative design for worship. Like you're telling me I can't do that? And I am, as an elder in this church, saying, no, you cannot do that. But there's something that's far greater than marriage. I would encourage you this week to read Matthew 22, and you have to look for for Christ in this because you won't get it. But it's this idea of the the Sadducees, who are a bunch of bozos, quite frankly, are coming to Jesus and trying to trick him. And they're like, okay, there's this long chain, uh, and this this guy marries a woman, and then the guy dies, and the the tradition of time is then you, that guy's brother takes this, and there's like seven brothers, and they all have to, like, and they're like, in the end, Jesus, who's the husband, like, in this situation? And Jesus essentially said, this is my paraphrase, you don't understand the Bible. You don't know what you're talking about. At the the end of this age, and you throw in the millennium, and it gets confusing, and I don't want to talk about that right now. But I'll say this. In heaven, Jesus essentially retires marriage and worship, or pardon me, sexuality in the way that we think about it now. And that's because the bridegroom is with the bride. You don't need that anymore. So if you're one of those people who are like, I'm afflicted now. Why can't I do these things? Why why does the church tell me this? Because it's not God's design. But be encouraged. There is something far greater that God has put you into right now. That you can worship him fully in an undistracted manner. 
And in, in Christ Jesus, that thing that looks like such a hard thing and a bad thing has become, become something great because as Paul writes to the churches, hey, you can be fully devoted to God now. I'm really going to get it from the pastoral staff about going over. But it's like, now we're going. I'm just not going to stop. Um, I want to I close the sermon in this way. I wrote a letter to my two sons, Hunter and Brock. But I, I asked them, hey, can I read this to the church? So this is the sermon conclusion. Um, and it's mostly about being in Christ Jesus, but in the wilderness. So as you're listening to my words, if you're a person who's hard-hearted against those who struggle with same-sex attraction in regards to saying those people are filthy and disgusting, I want you to hear this from their perspective of someone who's struggling and trying to do the right thing and recognizing that they're broken. If you're a person who disregards what the Word of God says in regards to sexuality, I want you to hear this and think, there's an opportunity to repent and then just endure because Jesus promises something better. So this is a letter from me to my sons, but it's also a letter from me, an elder, a shepherd in the church to you. I'm never going to make it through this. Dear Hunter and Brock, I'm writing you this letter so that you will remember to never, ever give up. The best way to do that is to remember Jesus, risen from the dead, the promised king. He's the center of the good news. Be very careful around people who say they love Jesus, but never talk about him. And be very careful around people who talk about him all the time, but do not do what he says. Most of all, be very careful around people who say that God's love for people depends on the things they do. That is not true in a very dangerous way to think. Life is a lot like the sports we love to watch and play. It's so fun to use our bodies in the way that God made them to be used. Hunter, I remember watching you in a recent game. You went up for a rebound and were like two feet higher than anyone else on the court. I was so proud. Brock, I remember watching you play soccer this fall and you absolutely drilled the ball with a huge kick all the way down the field. And this lady watching said, wow, who's that kid? I was so proud. It's fun to watch you score and make great plays, but even more than that, I'm proud when you make the right choices. When you choose to make the extra pass so someone else can score. When you play help defense instead of just standing around. When you do something that hurts you personally to help the team, I am so proud. But I am the most proud of all of something that no one else except me sees. When you make a mistake or get faked out or fall down, it brings me so much joy when you get back up as fast as you can. I'm the most proud of all. When someone runs past you, and even though you know you're never even going to catch him, you keep running and try as hard as you can because you know there's still a chance. That's what the Bible calls hope. I'm the most proud of all when instead of pouting and hanging your head, you keep trying and trusting the game plan of the coach. That's what the Bible calls faith. I'm the most proud of all when I can see that your lungs are burning and your eyes are watering and your legs are tired and your arms feel like they have huge weights attached to them. And you keep running and moving your feet and playing defense and helping your teammates and you even find ways to enjoy it. That's what the Bible calls perseverance. 
There are parts about life that are better than sports too. The best one is that Jesus has already won. And since he has won, the only thing that matters is how we play the game. In sports, we compete against each other. But because Jesus has won in life, we don't have to do that. The Bible calls this striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We can work together and do things that feel like they don't make sense even because we can trust Jesus. We can give away our money. We can give away our time. We can love people who are very hard to love. We cannot act on our feelings. We can keep our mouth shut instead of blabbing like big babies. We can even respond to evil with good and respond to hurt with love because God has given us all things in Jesus. The Bible says that parts of following Jesus are hard, not easy. But you must remember to never give up. It will be hard and lonely and confusing and there will be many chances to make mistakes. Sometimes you will get tricked and sometimes you will just decide to do the wrong thing even when you know it's wrong. I'm very sad that I spent a lot of my life doing that. You should not do that. But if you do, never give up. Don't hang your head in shame. Turn back to Jesus. Don't stop. Keep running. You should never give up because Jesus never gives up on you. Mom and I love you and want to help you. That means sometimes we say things that are hard for you to accept or obey. You must remember that true love is not about feelings, but a much deeper, stronger thing. God's gift of believing in him will never go away. God's promise that he will come back will never go away. God's real love for us is like a special glue that holds all these things together. God's love is the greatest thing. If I'm not around or mom is not around, you have other family. But I want you to know that the elders of Summit Church love you too. God has appointed them to care for you. They're like shepherds. That's actually what the word pastor means, shepherd. Sometimes shepherds say hard things, just like mom and I do. You should obey them. And the deacons love you too. They're God's special examples of servants in our church. People say elders and deacons aren't important anymore, but that's a bunch of garbage. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us what church should be like. Do those things. So don't listen to people who think church is dumb, that they found a new way to follow God. And most of all, don't listen to people who try to change what the Bible says. They think they're helping people by doing this, but they're only hurting them. Don't listen to these people. And when they talk, be sure to always point things back to Jesus. You don't have to be louder, but you must speak. And most of all, don't forget to love these people. Show them mercy. Correct the selfish ones. Encourage the ones who are tired. Help the weak ones. Be patient with everybody. And remember that in the church, other people will do these things for you too when you are selfish, tired, and weak. That is God's awesome plan. All this might seem scary, but God tells us to be strong and courageous. When you're weak, God shows he is strong. Remember, courage is doing the right thing even when you are afraid. I pray that when you are older, God will give you a beautiful woman to marry, just like mom. And give you your own children. I hope they love sports too. And maybe they will even see the Bears win another Super Bowl. But I want you to know that there is something even better and more important than all that. And that is exalting Jesus and never, ever giving up. Mom and I love you very much, boys. Remember, reflect Jesus and point people to him. Never forget that. Never, ever give up. You are loved by me and 
more than that and even stronger than that by God. Love, Dad. I'm grateful for that, for God's word. I'm grateful too for the way that he as a church is changing our hearts and giving us perhaps a greater empathy for those struggling because we're called to carry one another's burdens and the church is the people, not a building, not an institution. And so if you're here in our midst today, maybe you've been here for a long time and silently struggling in these ways, maybe you're brand new, maybe you only came today just to see if we would mess this up or how we would handle it. But we want you to know that we love you and if you're struggling in this area, you're not an outcast to us. You're not weird to us. You're broken like us. And we all share the need for redemption. The cliche is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It may sound cliche, but it's true. So if you're in our church, one of the saddest things might be that you might struggle alone. That you might be tormented by things that maybe you feel don't line up, but you also feel like you don't have a place in this family, but you do. So bring your sin to the light, and I promise to bring my sin to the light, my brokenness, because we have a Savior who's awesome. We have a Savior who knew what he was getting into when he called us to him. Nothing surprises him, nothing confuses him. And so as we leave this place today, we're going to trust that you're going to do business with the Lord, and maybe you're here today and Maybe there's a temptation towards self-righteousness to just be disgusted or to be angry about culture. We pray, too, that God's word would change your heart because that isn't the heart of God for his creation. But we're going to give you a song, and songs are great vehicles of truth and tone and emotion. And so we're going to sing as we leave this place, even though we're really late, but it was such an important morning. Say, yes, I will. I will lift you high from the lowest valleys to the highest mountain here's the great thing about worship. You can bring your struggles into worship. Worship is a decision to make Jesus even bigger than the struggle, even bigger than the hurts, even bigger than the disorder. So can we as a family purpose to follow after Jesus, no matter how hard it feels at times? Can we stand up together as we get ready to leave? And can we offer the Lord our hearts? And can we also be just especially empathetic in praying for those who struggle very directly with the things that we talked about God's presence would transform and make the difference in their hearts. Lord, we bring our hearts to you, Lord. Help us. Help us worship you rightly. I count on one thing. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now. In the waiting, hear this. Same God who's never late is working all things out. You're working all things out. This is what we do. Yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name.
we believe that Jesus walked this earth. He died on the cross and that Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive today. And we believe that when he says, I've come to give you an abundant life, more abundant through me, that he means that. And I think that's what we're all wrestling with here and there is, is God really good and is his ways really best? We've just started an introduction to this topic. We've got two more weeks, and we've even got a night that we're preparing for when we want to be able to fill some questions and even give time for more of a forum. So if you have questions as these next few weeks go, please send them our way through the email. You can find our emails on the back of your bulletin, and we want to fill some of those questions and see what's, what your heart's wrestling with and what you really care about. Now, we have lunch with the pastors, and so what we're going to do is I'm going to dismiss us. And if you're coming to lunch with the pastors, we're going to head straight back to the gym, and we're going to get started as soon as possible. But know this, church, as you go through this next day and weeks, you are loved. Thank you.